A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the 117 Experts Can't Be Wrong edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I like to think of myself as an expert, but I am not one of these 117 experts we'll be talking about today. No, but now the question is, if there are 117 experts and you're not one of them, does that now make you not like all of us? Because does that make us not experts? Yeah, I feel like this is one of those things where they say like 9 out of 10 dentists approve this toothpaste, but you don't use it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you need a new what dentist. What is wrong with you, Shane? <laughs> well, I've been, Tam, I've been asking this question for a long time. <laughs> many, many people have asked that question. Uh, we're all here in our Sylvan studio. It's a lovely day in Washington, D.C. It feels like summer, almost. It feels springy. Springy. It's not the hot cherry like trees are starting to pop. Yeah, it's that a little DC early. Thing. It's a little early right now. Um, but yeah, I'm here with uh, Benjamin Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And once again, Susan Hennessy, who we are proud to announce is officially joining the Rational Security podcast as a Aww. permanent permanent member panelist. Welcome to our merry band. Thank you. Yeah. Now we need I'm a song. Very delighted. And we're going to have, uh, you know. Uh, Helen Klein periodically try to fake you guys out and yeah. pretend to be Susan Hennessy. We should do the podcast blindfolded one day and see if we can tell. <laughs> Who's Susan? If it's, yeah, if it's <laughs> Susan, Susan or her or, sister. Yeah. And also if we can tell the difference between Diet Coke and yeah. Diet Pepsi. And Coke, and Zero. Coke Zero. Yeah. We should yeah. have an all-blindfold edition. <laughs> Let's do it. Sometimes it feels that way already. This is getting kinky, guys. <laughs> Maybe that'll be our the end. Fifty Shades of Rational. That may be our end of year special. That may be our end of series episode. <laughs> the blindfold edition. Shut the it bl- down. The blind leading the blind edition. Oh, well, today on the podcast, we're going to get to those 117 experts. They were more than 100 Republican national security experts who declared in an open letter that Donald Trump is unfit to be president. Who would actually serve or advise a President Trump? And President Obama, you remember him, pulls back the curtain on the inner workings of his foreign policy in a lengthy article, a uh, lengthy interview with The Atlantic. Um, why don't we get started with, uh, I'll kick off my wordplay. So this astonishing, I think, fair to say, letter, uh, was it published on War on the Rocks or did they just have it? It was published, they did. It was published on War on yes. the Rocks. Okay, we should give them credit for that. Uh, great site, great podcast, actually, too. Um, we, the undersigned members of the Republican National Security Community, I guess they could have said establishment <laughs> in this letter. By definition. By definition. Mm-hmm. We are represent a broad spectrum of opinion on America's role and what is necessary to keep us safe and prosperous. You probably have read this letter if you're listening to this podcast. Ends by saying, goes on to list a litany of things that make Donald Trump, in their words, I love this, unfitted to the office mm-hmm. of president. I like that. It's like he like he, you bought he, him off the rack. Yeah. He's you tried him on. He yeah. doesn't fit. He, we tried to measure him. He doesn't work. Um, the highlights. Uh, his, I caught that reference. Did you like that? Yeah. 
Yeah, that was very subtle. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, his embrace and expansive use of torture is inexcusable, they say. I like that they, it's the expansive use of torture. Right. Expansive. <laughs> it's not the torture. limited use of it's torture, limited. which right. might okay. be fine. A little bit of torture nobody far. has a problem with, but Playing the expansive okay. use of torture is unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, his admiration for foreign dictators such as Vladimir Putin is unacceptable for the leader of the world's greatest democracy. He has said very nice things about Vladimir Putin after he said very nice things about Trump. Uh, he is fundamentally dishonest. His equation of business acumen with foreign policy expertise is false. Not all lethal conflicts can be resolved as a real estate deal might, and there is no recourse to bankruptcy court in international affairs. That's a stick burn. Yeah. Um, it's, that is pretty good, too. Uh, this is, so this is a pretty stunning letter. I will offer it to the group if you've ever seen anything like this or are aware in contemporary times of so many people rising up with one voice. We should say, by the way, it keeps signatories keep being added to this letter. Who knew there were so many members of the Republican foreign policy establishment? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is, what is the criteria for getting to sign the letter? They're all here. Right? So I, I will say, in terms of have you ever seen anything like it, um, you know, two days before it ran, I actually wrote something kind of like it, but it just represented only me. Yeah, um, and it's an article. Yeah, and you're a closet Republican anyway. Yeah, so exactly. I'm, I'm sort of not a Republican. But the it was opposite a, of a rhino. It was yeah. an article that actually itself channeled something else that was kind of like this, which was an article that John Bellinger wrote on Lawfare in December, mm. saying that Trump, we should think about Trump as a as a threat to national security. Which is and, what you called him. Yeah. Well, right. So then I I took that article and kind of ran with it, and I tried to imagine all the all the elements of Trumpism which include the ones that they mention in that letter and a bunch of others, and is a little bit less hortatory and more analytical, but sort of like why we should think about right. Trump as a, a national security threat, not merely if he were president, but, but it, even as a, candidate, as a candidate. As the nominee. Right. Yeah. And um, so I, I do think what the War on the Rocks people are, uh, so first of all, I don't, they were clearly working on this before my piece ran. They, they couldn't have had as many signatures as they had in, in that period of time. I don't know, Ben. You're pretty influential. So, but but my, my gut is that a lot of people were thinking in the same yeah. direction right around the same time that, that, hey, now that we have to take this Trump thing seriously, you know, we should think about it in the language of how dangerous it would be for the United States if this is... Uh, you know, if this were really the the nominee. But, the, but look, the answer to your question is Bellinger was way out ahead of the Sure, curve. sure, sure. I don't mean I'm pressing like this article, but like, I mean, as in ganging up on this candidate. Have we ever yeah, seen that it is, before? I, I do think that's unprecedented. Not, you know, that foreign policy experts have never ganged up on any presidential candidates, but to see this wide range of people identifying themselves with a particular party ganging up on the front runner for yeah. that party. I think that's that's what's unprecedented. I also think the language yeah. is so intemperate. I mean, it's not hedged at all. It's quite extraordinary and almost to the point where it's a bit over the top. I mean, you know, look, I I think that there are a lot of reasons to question Trump's temperament. I think there's a lot of reason to question his understanding of world affairs um, and to question his judgment. But 
I hesitate to say that the, that the showman we see on our television screens night after night is necessarily the guy that would be same as the guy that would be sitting in the Oval Office. Um, and, and so I, while I'm certainly willing to look at his mercantilist impulses, his egocentrism, you know, and these other dimensions of his character that do seem fairly consistent, um, and, and worry about their consequences for American foreign policy. I don't think it's like mad dog in the White House, mm. you know. But I think that this is, it's, it's that bombastic thing that they are a little bit chafing against, right? It's that, um, these are serious times for serious people. This stuff is scary. Um, it's real. These are people that have hands-on experience. They understand the consequences of getting it wrong. Um, and so I think that part of this is them um, sort of really wanting to come out in the strongest possible terms um, and say, look, this is not a show. This is not a game. This is not, uh, you know, your your mail order steak business. This is the United States of America, and this is the world. And and I think these are people who all, um, you know, certainly Democrats as well, but you know, this group of people, they they take this work really seriously. Um, they take their commitments to the institution, to the rule of law, really seriously. Um, and so I think it is um, offensive and also sort of deeply threatening to them. Um, to sort of see someone who is so cavalier about this stuff. I think that's the thing where you start to get really freaked out because, um, you know, the one thing that sort of binds uh, everyone in this community sort of across the political spectrum together is sort of is an understanding of, of how high stakes this is. Um, and, and I think that's the reason why um, the national security community has been able to sort of break through some of the partisan stuff, right? Because the stakes are so high, uh, the consequences are so grave uh, that, you know, behind closed doors, the rhetoric tends to be much more tempered. You see a lot more collaboration. Um, so, I, uh, frankly, I'm surprised it didn't come earlier, right? It's kind of a little bit, little too late at this point. Well, it, I think you're, it's insightful that you note that this is maybe less about this this group of Republican foreign policy people being terrified and more about their being offended um, and and so and I think that explains a letter that not only the way it's written but the timing of it it's clearly not about having impact on the nomination process it's not designed to persuade the American voter or even to persuade party elders it is a statement of principle but, but maybe but it's, it's, also, pers- I think it's also something else I think it's also designed to give cover to a lot of people who are then going to turn around and support Hillary. And oh, oh that's that, an interesting and, point. And I think, you know, for, like, like I, I jokingly tweeted the other day that Hillary Clinton's campaign slogan should be, an adult and not insane. <laughs> um, and, wow, that's a low bar. Well, it, it is a low bar. It's catchy. But she's, but, you know, with the possible exception of John Kasich, she, she's the only one right now who kind of obviously clears it. And, um, and you know, there are a lot of people in the world who really hate Hillary Clinton who are having to contemplate the possibility of voting for her merely because she meets those two basic criteria. And to have uh, her, you know, and and to have documents out there that say the other, you know, 117 people from my own party regard this guy as 
unacceptable as a national security matter to be president of the United States gives people in that in that group and elsewhere something to point to that says, okay, there's a higher there's a higher reason than partisan politics to support Hillary. And so my question ultimately then, and maybe this gets at it, is does this letter matter? Right. I mean, does this letter, and, and how, and, and matter to whom is, I guess, one way of putting it, but does it matter that these people, is this going to change anything that 117 and counting people have now come out in this extraordinary way, whatever their motivations, <clears throat> and essentially are trying to persuade people not to elect this man? So I don't think that they're necessarily going to persuade anyone not to elect him, um, but I do think they might be persuading people not to advise him. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I, I think don't that this... Try, don't make him a better candidate on foreign policy. Just let him right. hoist himself on his own petard. Mm -hmm. And there might be consequences within your own peer group if you decide to legitimize um, this candidate. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of which... That yeah. leads very well to your wordplay, Ben. <laughs> yeah, that's a great segue. Um, thank you, Susan. Um, ben knows segues. Uh, yes, it's a great segue. It is now, by the way, I want to point out that it's segue weather again. Oh, oh good. Oh, Here we go again. Yeah. Segue, have you? Um, it's Ben Winnis' segue season, ladies His and gentlemen. segue season is back. Segues <laughs> are not safe. And, and by the way, if, if anybody wants to come on a Segway tour through the cherry blossoms, uh, it may have to happen in the next few days. Yeah. Um, so I read this really interesting piece in the Daily Beast um, by uh, I don't know, some, some reporter I've never heard of before. Mm -hmm. about no one's ever heard of him. <coughs> Shane Harris. Harris guy? Uh, Harris. 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 Nobody. Sean Harris. Devastatingly handsome. Well, <laughs> incredibly insightful. And it was a piece about the one prominent intelligence uh, national security guy who seems to be uh, advising Trump. Uh, and that is former DIA uh, Chief uh, General Flynn. Uh, whom I had not previously known to be uh, insane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, by the way, for the record, according to him, a registered Democrat. Right. Wow. That just makes it so perfect. Yeah. I don't even <laughs> understand. What do we know about General Flynn? Is he an isolationist? Well, I, I don't <laughs> well, know that much about him, except that he ran DIA. He gave a speech at Brookings yeah. not all that long ago. He was pushed out a year ahead of time at DIA. He was controversial. Um, but uh, he does seem to be... Now, is it clear that he's supporting Trump? It's, or... it's, 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 so it's a very... So just to kind of recap a little bit from the article, I mean, it just... He has acknowledged to advising him. He uses the word informally, but then he does not elaborate on what formally versus informally means. It's That's like really... that guy you dated in college that won't call you his girlfriend. It's, it, no, it's exactly like that. You're hanging it's out. It's exactly that. No, that's right. exactly what it is. I really enjoy spending time with yeah. you. But like you wouldn't like then you say girlfriend or boyfriend and they like slowly back out of the room. Right. It's that. And like okay. behind the scenes, I've heard you know people who know him and who've been in a room with him and hearing him talk about Trump, who said that you know he's spoken admiringly. So, uh, you know, uh, Flynn has spoken admiringly, admiringly of Trump, uh, and you know he's also, for the record, met with Ted Cruz. Um, but it's not clear from my reporting that the Cruz relationship is anywhere sort of as developed as the Trump relationship. So, he, so here's my question: I mean, which of Trump's 
you know, crazy, bombastic statements about intelligence, should we attribute to the advice that he's received? That we should be torturing people? So, so yeah, well, and that we should do far more than waterboarding. Yeah. Is that general flavor? We should about? behead the families of terrorists? No, no, no. Uh, uh, go, after. Go, after. Go, go after. Go after. Sorry, go, go after. Because they're beheading they're people, beheading. so right. we should be worse than that. Maybe, maybe General Flynn's <laughs> advice was to bomb the shit out of ISIS's <laughs> oil installation. Yeah. I mean, which part, at which part of Trumpism should we actually think uh, that re reflects the uh, you sage know, advice but, of General Flynn? But guys, <laughs> can I just say, like, <laughs> as somebody who was publicly identified for a day as uh, supposedly an advising Bernie Sanders. Um, Which oh, we, we should give you an opportunity to say, is that true tomorrow? Tim, Why? are you a current advisor <laughs> to Bernie Sanders? Why no? Uh, it, you know, but how do these, where do these things come from? You know, part of my job, and I would think that part of what most former senior national security officials would see as their civic responsibility is answering calls that come from prominent individuals with policy interests, helping them understand issues and consulting with them. And that doesn't mean that you support them or that you're advising them. So I met with Bernie Sanders once. He was a senator. He wanted to talk about ISIS, and I talked to him about ISIS because I think uh, that's part of my job, but that doesn't mean that I'm advising his campaign. I am explicitly not. Um, uh, is, and is there a campaign that you are advising? <laughs> are you with anyone, Tammy? Yes, I think it is. I, I believe I have disclosed publicly on the podcast before, but I am advising Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, and and I think, but I, I think that in the press, and I'd love your perspective on this, Shane, there's a hunt for advisors for all yeah. these candidates there's lots of gossip always, um, and there are always lots of meetings going on, right. always. And so, I, you know, Flynn's being cagey, is that because he doesn't want to confirm or he doesn't want to deny or because he isn't really sure yet? I I just, I don't know how significant it is. I do think it gets to sort of um, a larger question, not just as Trump becomes sort of the presumptive nominee, but um, but certainly if he's elected president, and that is, um, what is the moral obligation um, so, you know, a, a huge part of um, certainly in the national security community, although I'd imagine, um, you know, the foreign policy community as well, is built on individual trust relationships that sort of um, that transcend partisanship, right? It's people sure. that, um, you know, in, in, in a um, professional environment where other people necessarily know things that you don't know and you know things that they don't know, um, knowing somebody is an honest broker, a smart person, um, someone whose judgment you trust, um, that's immense important. It's just, it's kind of how uh, how the trains run on time, how there's continuity across administrations. Well, and isn't it also a mark of leadership to recognize what you don't know and reach out to people who do know it? Exactly. So the question becomes, if someone is elected who is unfit, who is a dangerous to the institution, um, do you view yourself as as a guardian, right? That you that you are there to um, to preserve the rule of law, to defend, um, you know, massively powerful and, and a potentially really quite dangerous national security tools, or do you say I don't want to be a part of this, right? So so in deciding who to advise. What is sort of what is the obligation of the responsible policymaker, the responsible lawyer? Um, so a couple things. 
One is, once somebody is elected, you may well have a civic obligation to, uh, you know, quite apart from who's holding the office, to serve the office, partly to protect certain tools from the occupant of the office. I know one person who was asked to, uh, not, I have to be very cagey about how I say this, to be uh, chief of staff to somebody uh, that he, he didn't think should be in office and uh, agreed to do it. And his first piece of advice to the person was resign. Wow. Um, and uh, six weeks later, gave him the same advice again. Um, and so, you know, sometimes, sometimes there is a civic obligation to hold positions for uh, unsavory, inappropriate people because they shouldn't be in the offices that they are in. And I think there, you know, there is a Trump, you know, Trump, if he were elected, I think would put a lot of people in that, in, in, in that position, you know, of, of thinking about what's the, what's the right posture for me with respect to this person uh, and the office in question. On the other hand, I don't think that holds when the person's a candidate. Um, my view is, you know, I, in my Brookings capacity, I will talk to any candidate and I will provide, or, or their staff, I will provide the same advice, uh, you know, the, the same policy guidance that I can give to anybody on an equal basis, uh, Republican or Democrat, candidate, office holder. Um, that said, you know, if Donald Trump came to me and said, uh, you know, I want your advice on ISIS, I would start with change the entire way you talk about the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. You're endangering the national security of the United States. So you would advise him not so much to help him as much as to tell him like it is and to try to correct what you see as his mistakes. I, I would say you have poisoned the ability of the United States to engage with the Muslim world the first thing you need to do is publicly apologize. The second thing you should do is remove yourself from the conversation. And that would be, you know, my on, like, and I'm not sure uh, why anybody, particularly a former DIA head who has presumably some insight into the impact of U.S. behavior in attitudes in parts of the world with which we need to engage, I'm not sure what business uh, General Flynn has telling Donald Trump anything other than, well, look, sir, you know, with all due respect, you suck. I think I can answer that question, which is I would direct people <laughs> uh, to uh, Michael Flynn's Twitter feed, uh, where, among other things, he has tweeted recently. Let me just pull this up real quick. Um, Fear of Muslims is rational. Wow. Linking to a tweet from so his... So there you go. Linking to a tweet, a, a video that uh, says that a video that purports to reveal "quote unquote" the basics of Islam and argues that "quote the term Islamophobia is an oxymoron since having a phobia means having an irrational fear. Fearing Islam, which wants eighty percent of humanity enslaved or exterminated, is totally rational." He then retweeted a photo of a woman named Brigitte. A meeting of the minds. So yeah. there we go. So now we have the answer to Ben's yeah. question, so which is go. all of it. He's an Islamophobe. Just some hateful, gross. Yeah, there was also, he retweeted a photo of a woman named Brigitte Gabriel, who's the founder of Act for America, 
which is an advocacy group dedicated to, in its words, fighting radical Islam's attempts to infiltrate and take over the West, um, calling her an incredibly courageous person. It was a photograph of her standing at Mar-a-Lago, where she claimed to be giving a national security briefing and quote, look who I bumped into. And, and it was there Trump. we go. Ah, so that may be another... The circle is complete. <laughs> right. His so... foreign policy advice comes from Birgit Gabriel and General Flynn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now all is clear. But the yeah. important thing in terms of the world of, uh, of advising candidates is who advised Bernie Sanders to wear a brown suit? Oh, brown suits are terrible. No, no one. You guys didn't watch the. You know, I think Bernie Sanders just owns the old Brooklyn grandpa thing, and he might as well rock the suit that goes with it. I have no problem with that. I cannot. I cannot defend the brown suit. Does the Um, brown suit have national security implications? Potentially. Potentially. If people are offended by brown or scared by brown. Do you remember how much crap President Obama got for wearing a brown suit? Brown suit. What's the problem? Uh, I just want to advise one last question before we wrap this up. A question you had, which I thought was a really good one. About, you know, the question of the significance of it. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly right. I mean, like, you know, at, what, at some point, Donald Trump presumably will put out officially on paper a list of people who are... Which he's been promising to do for six months. That's the thing. And that's yeah. what I was going to get as why, you know, the sort of the hunt for it and the interest in it, I think, is because because he's the front runner and he has consistently both made extreme statements about foreign policy and national security issues and consistently refused to say who he's actually getting advice from. The question has been, you know, is anyone actually advising you or are you just making this up as you go along? And he actually came out the other day and started praising Richard Haas as someone he liked. And it wasn't clear if I would. It was like, well, you're not saying Richard Haas is advising you. Actually, Richard Haas responded on Twitter very quickly saying, by the way, as president of the Council on Foreign Relations, I don't advise any candidates by policy. Um, But also Richard Haas is sort of the the antithesis of the kind of sure. um, viewpoints that well, Trump's been espousing. It struck also, I mean, not to be too cynical about it, but as Donald Trump sort of being put on the spot and going, uh, think of a name, quick, quick. Think- Richard Haas, I've seen him on TV. He's good. <laughs> anyway, I watch the shows. Maybe this is the answer. He watches the shows. Yeah. No, he said that. That, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he says that those words. Like all Americans, he learns by watching the Sunday talk shows. He should say John Dickerson is one of his advisors. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's listened to Whistle Stop. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great podcast. Uh, I love John Dickerson. Shout out to John Dickerson's Whistle Stop podcast, yeah. which is uh, genuinely worth a half an hour oh, yeah. of your time every time. It's so worth so much together. more than trying to figure out who's advising That's Trump true. on foreign policy. What I'd like to figure out is how John Dickerson has time to do what he does, which is host Face the Nation. Do the Slate podcast, do Whistle Stop. You know he has another, like, shadow podcast? It's like three minutes a day where he just, like, speaks into a mic. It's a campaign diary. Maybe he just has a mic with him all the time. Maybe he does does these while he's walking down the street and in the shower. I want to be John Dickerson when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, um, Tamara, you have a a lengthy wordplay. I have a pretty heavy wordplay. It's it's a magazine article, but, boy, when you put it down on the table, it goes thunk. So this is a piece Wait, that... Let, let's actually hear that. Okay. Uh, Tammy's going to drop the article. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is this tome of which we speak? It dropped this morning. It's a, a Jeffrey Goldberg cover story for the, uh, the upcoming Atlantic magazine. Um, a long, 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 I mean about 15 or 18,000 words 
article called The Obama Doctrine, colon, The President Explains His Hardest Decisions About America's Role in the World. And I have to say, I think it's the kind of journalism that Jeffrey Goldberg really excels at, which is just spending hours and hours with a head of state. He did one, uh, an article like this on King Abdullah a couple of years ago, with a head of state really learning their worldview, learning the way they work with their advisors, talking through with them their really tough decision points, and giving all of us a lot of insight into how uh, that person's mind works when it comes to foreign policy. And I think that this is an incredibly revealing article. I commend it to all of you, although you need to sit down and, and read it when you've got like a couple hours to spare. Um, a few things jump out at me, uh, and I should say that um, I... I uh, was asked by The Atlantic, along with a whole slew of other interesting people, to write a short response, uh, which uh, will go up on the Atlantic.com website in the next day or two. Uh, and shout out, by the way, to Kathy Gilsonen, uh, editor at Atlantic.com and podcast listener. Thanks, oh. Kathy, for, Thanks, uh, Kathy. for listening. Um, so a few things jump out at me from this piece. The first is how entirely unrepentant it uh, Obama is about all of his major foreign policy decisions, whether it's the pivot to Asia or the um, decision not to enforce his red line on Syrian chemical weapons um, and so on. Even the one that he says very explicitly, it didn't work, which is the intervention into Libya. He doesn't repent it. Mm. Um, he just says it doesn't work. It didn't work. And uh, and he explains why he thinks that was. But the Obama that emerges from this piece is an Obama that is, number one, just relentlessly focused on not repeating the mistakes of his predecessor, learning the lessons of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and avoiding uh, the same in a way that I think led him into other errors. But the, the other thing that really strikes me is this is an Obama that is focused on seizing opportunities, much more interested in pursuing opportunities in world affairs than in dealing with the crises that inevitably erupt. He's much better at persistence in the face of all the tumult of global politics than at adaptation when circumstances change, even when they change radically. And he's very, very firm on the principles that guide his choices um, much more firm on that than he is on the necessity of choice in a messy world. And um, for reasons that I'll explain in my little contribution to the debate, um, I think that leads him into a set of errors that he and we in the United States will have to live with for quite a long time. But I think it's a just a fascinating look at a guy who calls himself a realist at some points in the article, calls himself a liberal interventionist at some points in the article, and is really seen struggling with the issue of the use of force and where it fits in American foreign policy. So my first reaction when I saw this piece was coming out was, great, the Obama doctrine, just in time for him to leave, leave. the presidency. Yeah, now we right. get it. <laughs> right. And hearing you describe it, you know, and I haven't read it, but I've seen some of the highlights that were put out uh, last night, uh, is... You know, it, it, there is no doctrine. I mean, you can't be all these things. Like, there's no consistency in that. But, uh -huh. is, but isn't the doctrine, in fact, the one that Bernie Sanders is talking about openly? Um, Bernie Sanders says, you know, we have to think hard about the unintended consequences of every overseas 
uh, action. And while I'm not opposed to interventionism in certain limited cases, the bar is very high. And he doesn't speak a language of liberal interventionism. He speaks a language of extreme caution, let the world go to hell if it, if it doesn't involve us. And Obama, in fact, talks a different language. But actually, if you burrow down in his decision making, he, in fact, reflects almost exactly what Bernie Sanders professes. So there but, is a doctrine, but he's just having trouble articulating it himself. Right, and like <laughs> anyone, um, you know, anyone who's looking at the Republicans right now and thinking that they are the only sort of um, group struggling for the soul of their party really needs to look at Bernie Sanders' comments on Libya, Bernie Sanders' comments on Syria, and needs to, um, to ask themselves um, whether or not responsibility to protect is a progressive value. Um, if it's not, uh, there is some serious soul searching that needs to be done. Um, because he's not advocating intervention in Syria. Does no, it? in fact, he's saying it's a bad idea. And I think that it's not, I mean, you're right about the, the debate over responsibility to protect, but I think there's a prior question that's being fiercely debated uh, on the progressive side of the political spectrum, which is about the nature of intervention. Is it possible for the United States to use force in a limited way, or is you know, or as Sanders contends, and I think Obama largely contends over the course of this article, is every use of force a potential slippery slope to an Iraq War style, open-ended, bottomless American military commitment? There's you know, and oftentimes I think we've seen people on the progressive side make a straw man argument about this, but. You see Sanders in, in his Libya and Syria comments really playing it out in a much more detailed way. And Obama clearly feeling like his choice not to intervene in Syria was the right one because if he had, we would be mired in another war in the Middle East right now. And to me, the irony is that, of course, we are. Uh, and it is, and Syria. it is a war that Obama chose. <laughs> it's just not one that he is acknowledging is a war. Right, and I think it also goes to the importance of advisors, because whenever you look back at Libya um, and you see him having advisors like Samantha Power, author of uh, Problem from Hell, um, sort of uh, deeply committed to some of those principles and, um, and uh, you know, versed in some of the consequences of, of failing to make a choice, um, you know, you, you really can see how strong um, committed advisors can change, uh, you know, sort of significant outcomes I mean, and what happens as those people move in and out. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that people matter in policy, absolutely. I think the other thing, and the article goes into to this at some length, is is about the opportunities and the priorities that the Obama administration set for itself and didn't allow itself to be distracted from, despite all the topics we discuss in this podcast on a regular basis, which is, you know, the opportunity to build a new kinds of coalitions in East Asia that strengthen American interests there and help uh, support what Obama would say is the peaceful rise of China as a global power, the effort to combat climate change. And these are messy problems that require multilateral solutions and American leadership. And I think that those are also major components of what progressives see as their foreign policy agenda. So one note on this, um, uh, I commend to all of our listeners an essay uh, by on lawfare by Amar Abdul Hamid um, about the dangerous and um, and 
misleading disparity between the liberal interventionist rhetoric of the Obama administration, including Samantha Power and Obama himself, and the reality uh, that is much more uh, uh, realist or, or uh, anti-interventionist. And he, Amar's piece, which I thought was quite moving, uh, which is called, Is Syria Obama's Fault?, um, really takes them to task for that disparity of rhetoric and says, you know, when you talk that way, as, as they did about, you know, responsibility to be involved, responsibility to, to protect, uh, people in Syria heard that and relied on it and believed it. And, you know, it's different from when Henry Kissinger, uh, it behaves like a realist because everybody prices that into, uh, you know, he doesn't use moral rhetoric. And, um, and so Amar's view of it really is that Obama engaged in something of a bait and switch mm. and, and bears a lot of responsibility for the reliance interest that he created among people who uh, believed that America would be behind them. Toronto, does, does Obama talk at all in the article about who might come next and replace them in the White House and what they're inheriting and what they might do differently. I mean, any kind of There's view ahead. Because, I mean, somebody could come in and radically change his policy. It's true. It's mostly a <clears throat> retrospective. There is a section of the article that talks about Obama's focus and his White House team's focus right now on handing off a, a clean slate. <laughs> and uh, And this is used as a way of explaining their focus on defeating ISIS. Um, I really have to ask how realistic it is uh, for the administration to think that it can hand off uh, an, an anti-ISIS campaign as some kind of mopping up operation in January 2017. I, I think that's pretty unrealistic, but, uh, but that's really the only forward-looking component. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, check it out this weekend when you have, uh, you know, an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's going to be a really great article. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll, I'll go first, speaking of things you might want to do on your weekend. You have a high bar to clear in terms of beating your object from last week. What was my object last week? Your The response for, to your FOIA request on the oh, oh, yeah, yeah totally. That was awesome. Can you beat that? Top yeah, that, Shane. see if I can actually beat the response. <laughs> oh, yeah. have, have you filed your appeal yet? I'm crafting my appeal. Okay. We, we, we want a dramatic reading. We eagerly await. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm actually, I, I'm, this is going to sound like a plug, but it's fine. Uh, so season four of House of Cards has premiered. And this is what I recommend it, not because I like the show. Now, wait a minute, Shane. Were you at the premiere at the National Portrait Gallery? National Portrait Gallery. I have some friends who work. Did you see the man himself, President Underwood? I did. I saw him in character and out of character. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's impressive. In you lead a character. charmed life, Mr. Harris. It's true. What a it's yeah. not easy. What a life. Um, Will House of Cards tweet this episode? Well, who knows? They might. Uh, but I commend it to listeners only, not because you may like the show, but uh, without giving too much away, <clears throat> um, the FISA court plays a major part in the plot of this season of House of Cards. Wow! Which was stunning. I National was like, Security what? on TV. Yes. And I just had to I'm say... I'm sure they'll get it totally right. Yeah. Yeah. Nuance. They undoubtedly was, read the no. seminal <laughs> Legal Times article <laughs> in the mid-90s in which the first journalist visited <laughs> the FISA court. the first. It's the only. <laughs> Are you? 
I am the only journalist who's ever been inside the FISA court, and when I, uh, when the Justice Department and the administrative office passed, created a rule that they weren't going to let anybody else in afterwards, the then public affairs officer, uh, John Russell, uh, now uh, alas deceased, called me and said, well, witness, you have the eternal exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, well, Ben, you should definitely watch it. Uh, the There is actually a scene in the FISA court, which it looks like, like a courtroom in the D.C. Superior Courthouse. <laughs> and like the, the judge at one point looks at, the, looks at the lawyer and says, approach the bench. And I'm like, they don't think they don't do that. that. Yeah. But still, I mean, it's dramatic. <laughs> but I have to say, and I'm not going to give anything away, but the reason that it plays in and this sort of scheme that gets developed is so, like, amazingly, wildly improbable, except in the world of House of Cards, and it's, like, so crazy and illegal, it's just great. <laughs> the national security, like, you will you will love what they, they just, like, they just took Again, that and they were like, oh, what if the president did this? Theory. It's great. Yes. It's just really, it's delightful. But I think, I think lawfare clearly has to do a fact check on, on their presentation of national totally. security. Totally. Yeah. And we look but forward look, to that. think about all the times um, we had to have conversations in the last election about 24 scenarios from the television yeah. show, 24, yeah. and candidates needing to respond to that. I, now we're going to have to have a whole I'm, other conversation I don't know. I'm about... a big believer in, like, accuracy doesn't matter so much in these things. It's just dramatic consistency is what matters. Well, and this is a dramatically consistent choice. Hmm. I will say that I, for I, President I was, Underwood. I was right. not planning to watch this season's House of Cards. You should. But now I think I may have to. I think you got to, Ben. The world needs your review. I've been working my way through London Spy. Oh, it's so good. Which is fabulous. Yeah, that was my other recommendation. Um, Okay. Ben, do you have an object you'd like to share with the class? I have a brief object. This is a two-part object, this week's part and next week's part. This week, the Wittes family is uh, renting a car. Wait, a minivan. A minivan or an SUV to drive 11 hours to Kentucky to pick up a rescue puppy. And so my re- my item this week, which is the gas guzzler, we're going to be carting yes. across the country, <laughs> which, contributing to climate change. And I just want to point out <laughs> the idea of packing four witnesses in a car together with two dogs um, to drive uh, 22 hours round trip. Uh-huh. Um, no, this is going to go well. This yeah. Is, oh, yeah. It's very exciting. It clearly has national security implications. <laughs> if you I, hear an explosion <laughs> somewhere <laughs> on the turnpike. It's not ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> it's us. Oh, yeah. You're, you're essentially in a glass and metal cage. Yes. Exactly. yes. With um, two teenagers and two dogs. Uh-huh. What could go wrong? And a gas uh-huh. tank full of, uh, <laughs> you know, flammable material. Uh-huh. <laughs> Assuming this week's object lesson does not end in a fiery disaster, <laughs> next week's object lesson will be a puppy. Do we have a name? No. No. Okay. To, to be determined. All right. It's going to be hard to top heavily Fergie litigated as a name. That's, yes. Okay. We eagerly await. <laughs> uh, Tamara, is your object also the puppy? How could it be otherwise? Oh, that's it's nice. All, this puppy's, all in. What on kind the of puppy, puppy is it going to be? A mutt. Right. That's nice. You're going all the way to Kentucky for a month. Doesn't the res- do this for you? It's a rescue mutt. Okay. It's a long story. All right, but oh, this man. is the dog. Yeah, crossing the world. All right. And we're bringing the current dog to meet him. So. Do you think there's any chance to get to Kentucky? Look at the dog and be like, Meh. there's well, 
No, I will just say that the process of deciding to drive to Kentucky in order to introduce the current dog to the new dog and explore whether this this is the new shape of our family it was the result of extensive multilateral negotiations and I think really brought Ben and me to the next level in our preparedness for major uh, foreign policy and diplomatic engagements. Excellent. We have have dealt with the Wittes children about this. You know, we can negotiate anything with Putin now. Oh, yeah. You're totally prepped. It'll be huge. 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 Uh, do you have an object? I do not. Okay, well, we'll cut that How can out. I top a puppy? That's I'm not okay. even going to try. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our archive and our past shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, and also, when you download the podcast, please leave a rating and a review. We really appreciate it. Uh, the podcast is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Donald Trump in the brown suits. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> brown shirt. <laughs> oh, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> hey, so speaking of Sophia Gap. Yeah, when we actually do, performed. When we do the blindfolded episode, yeah. one thing we'll have to do is get Sophia to play something and get uh, some famous pianist to say, oh, play, yeah. play the same thing. And see if you can tell the difference between, you know, Sophia and Vladimir Ashkenaz. I like it. Yeah. Or we can see if she could, like, imitate Glenn Gould. (laughs) I bet she could do that. I bet she could do it. She can do it. She could definitely do it. Um, For all my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.